it's time for another episode of Tom Sidecast. Now, today I'm going to do something a little different. I'm going to think about Star Wars. And for those of you that have ever had a class with me or know me, you know that I love Star Wars. Now, why would I be talking about Star Wars on my podcast? Well, what if, what if Star Wars took place in our very own solar system, whether it's in the past, the present, and the future? I know it sounds kind of weird, but, but bear with me here. Now, I know that Star Wars took place a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. But in many ways, those alien worlds remind me of our own solar system. Okay, here we go. Think about ice planet Hoth. We first saw this frozen over world in the Empire Strikes Back. It was home to Echo Base. And according to Han Solo, there isn't enough life on this ice cube to fill a space cruiser. So ice planet Hoth, I mean, this... It's a remote planet in the outer rim of the Star Wars galaxy. It was home to Echo Base, or Hidden Rebel Bases, which of course Darth Vader found and led to a really cool epic battle with the ATATs, you know, those all-terrain attack vehicles transporting the troops to the base. Yeah, I know. And the rebels are trying to get out as fast as they can. But it's an ice planet. What in our solar system might resemble Hoth? Okay, well, you could think about the icy moons of Jupiter or Saturn, but let's go back in time. Let's go back in time in Earth to about 720 million years ago to 635 million years ago during a time period known as a cryogenian. And if you know a little bit about Earth history, that's also in the Proterozoic Eon, the one right before the eon we're in today called the Phanerozoic. It's hard to think about our world being encapsulated in ice almost all the way to the equator. And in fact, some people believe that there was no open oceans during the cryogenian. And it lasted a long time too. 100 million years, 85 million years. Either way, I mean, the cryogenian lasted longer than the entire Cenozoic era that we are in today. Right, I know, the Earth was encapsulated in ice for a time period longer than since the dinosaurs have gone extinct. One of the problems with the cryogenian is it occurred a long time ago. I mean, it ended over 635 million years ago, so there's not a lot of evidence left of it. So one of the raging debates is, well, what caused it? What tripped the Earth into this runaway ice age that led to ice being covered all the way down to the equator? Well, as you can imagine, there are leading theories. One of the earlier theories that I learned way back in graduate school in the early aughts, I know, 2001, 2002, was that there was a, a supercontinent or there were these continental masses, cratons or something like that. They moved toward the equator. And with the land masses near the equator... Now remember, this is still hundreds of millions of years before we had the first forest on the planet, right? They didn't exist yet. There weren't even trees or plants for that matter. So any continent was barren rock. So as these continents moved near the equator, it was still warmer, it was still wetter, 
and that led to increased rock weathering that scrubbed the atmosphere of carbon dioxide. So over time, as you removed carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, well, we know it's a greenhouse gas, the earth got cooler. And then in this positive feedback loop, we got a runaway ice age. So you remove some carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. It gets cooler. When it gets cooler, you get more ice forming. You get the poles, will, you know, they'll get bigger. When the poles get bigger, they reflect more sunlight into space. Cools the planet off, cools the oceans off. Next winter rolls around. Well, guess what? Your ice extends a little bit more. You see where we're going with this, right? And through this positive feedback, the Earth was gripped in an ice age that lasted nearly 85 million years. And some of the earlier estimates that I saw when I was in graduate school was as long as 100 million years. I think that's been refined down now to about 85 to 70 million years that the Earth was a giant snowball like our ice planet Hoth. Now, obviously, you know, the Earth got out of it somehow because we're not in a snowball today. I mean, our Earth looks nothing like Hoth, ice planet Hoth, I should say. Although we are in an ice age because we do have polar ice caps. We have permanent ice at both our poles. But how did the Earth's climate break itself of this ice age? I mean, think about it. If you're a snowball, you're reflecting all of this sunlight back into space, keeping you cold. I mean, some of those estimates, they put average surface temperatures at the equator near minus 25 degrees Celsius. That's like 50 degrees Celsius cooler than today. I mean, that's almost 100 degrees difference Fahrenheit. So how did we break out of that, right? I mean, you got this ice that's reflecting all the sunlight. How do you warm the planet back up? Well, it turns out that if you encapsulate the entire planet in ice, you're going to really affect the carbon cycle. So carbon dioxide, it's released by volcanic activity. So our Earth is volcanically active. So there's always some amount of carbon dioxide being added into the atmosphere through volcanic activity. Then rock weathering. If you start weathering limestone, which is a type of sedimentary rock made out of calcium carbonate, that can also release carbon back into the atmosphere. On the flip side, if you have a lot of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, it can dissolve in the oceans and form calcium carbonate and be precipitated out as rock. And if you've got life on the planet as well, well, life can sequester carbon dioxide through photosynthesis and it can form biomass or it can even form deposits of coal and oil. So there are balances in our atmosphere. If the world is covered in ice, you're going to have a lot less rock weathering. So you're not going to remove any CO2 from the atmosphere, not as much. You're going to have a lot less photosynthesis going on. That's why I'm not sure I totally buy that the Earth was encapsulated in ice everywhere, because clearly photosynthesis survived it with no problem. But either way, your method of sequestering carbon dioxide is going to be greatly reduced. You're going to get a lot less taken out of the atmosphere. And over time, because volcanism doesn't care about what's happening on the surface, you know what I mean? Like, you can have all the ice you want. That's not going to stop a volcano from going off. So over time, volcanic activity slowly rose CO2 levels in the atmosphere. And eventually, with enough CO2 in the atmosphere, you generated a large enough greenhouse effect 
that began to melt the ice. And once again, you get a positive feedback that would result in a hothouse. So as your ice melts, there's less ice to reflect the sunlight. Your oceans will absorb more energy. So then the next winter rolls around, your, your ice caps are a little bit smaller. And then the next summer, since they're smaller, they melt a little bit more. You get the idea. That's an overgeneralization because there's lots of you know year-to-year variation that we see in our world today. Even though our CO2 levels are going up every single year, we still have years that are a little bit warmer and a little bit colder. In the last few years, there's been some new data indicating, or at least new models or theories, that the cause of the cryogenian may have been due to a rapid change in either the amount of sunlight coming into the planet or a sudden drop in carbon dioxide levels. Not so much a threshold that trips you into an ice age, like if you drop below 185 parts per million of CO2 or your light goes down 2%, but a rapid drop in these numbers could trigger the ice age. And as people continue to study this, I'm sure we'll get more and more information and we'll refine the causes of the cryogenian. And honestly, you know, we may not fully figure it out because, well, a lot of the information is gone because we live on an active planet. Okay, that is the Earth as Ice Planet Hoth way back in the past. That makes sense, right? Star Wars was a long time ago. Well, also in The Empire Strikes Back, shortly after the Battle of Hoth, there's Dagobah. Now, Dagobah is a swamp planet home to ancient Jedi masters. And it's a world of, you know, swamps, forests, it's hot, humid, basically a hotbed for life. When was the Earth like this? Because there's clearly no planets like that right now. But you know what? The Earth, about 350 million years ago, was much warmer than it is today. And in fact, we got our first forest, the greening of the Earth, about 400 million years ago in a time period known as the Devonian. And then as we go into the Carboniferous, our world was covered in forest, or at least the parts on land. The reality is we were in a hothouse then and ocean levels were much higher. And in fact, in part of North America, much of the middle part of our country was an inland sea because sea levels were much higher because there was no ice at the poles. So something like, you know, planet Dagobah, the earth was warm, wet, covered in forest. And interestingly, the Carboniferous, known because of our carbon deposits, is where we form a lot of our coal and oil that we mine today that has fueled our industrial revolution. Now, there was, you know, a big difference between Dagobah and the earth. Dagobah, the entire world was wet and swampy, like covered in forests and bogs and lagoons and whatnot. Our world is, you know, it's about 75% covered in water. And at the time of the Carboniferous, most of the land formed one giant continent called Pangaea, or at least it was forming during that time period. And we had one very large ocean, much bigger than the Pacific. Imagine taking, you know, Europe, Asia, Africa, South America, Antarctica, Australia, jam all those together into one continent and imagine how big the Pacific Ocean would be. And that was the ocean that was back then. So Dagobah didn't have that, but it still makes for a neat comparison because if you were to go back to the land during that time period, it was wet and swampy. And also interestingly, 
the climate was uniform from almost pole to pole. And the way that we know that there was very little seasonal variability is that when we look at the, the fossils of the trees, there's no rings. Rings indicate seasonal variability, whether it's amount of rain or temperature. If you go down the tropics and pull a tree out of like the Amazon rainforest, you're not going to see tree rings because they're going to grow all year long. So I always like the comparison that Dagobah was Earth way back in the Devonian and the Carboniferous. And interestingly, during that time period as well, that's when we got the first tetrapods. So there were like, you know, these large vertebrates living on the land along with some like crazy big arthropods like the giant dragonflies and the giant millipedes or centipedes, the ancestors to them, they're like nearly six feet long. And the reason was because oxygen levels were like 30% of our atmosphere back then. We can thank photosynthesis for that. Okay, I have to think of another planet here. How about Mustafar? Mustafar is a place where Jedis go to die. I know, and home of the epic Jedi battle between Anakin slash Darth Vader and Obi-Wan Kenobi. This is basically where Darth Vader was truly born because he was defeated by Obi-Wan Kenobi. Now, when I first thought about Mustafar and I saw that, I'm like, oh yeah, that's, that's the Hadean Earth. That's the Earth 4 billion years ago when the surface was molten, maybe even further back than 4 billion years ago, maybe 4.3, 4.4. When it hadn't solidified yet, and there was lots of volcanism on the planet, or maybe even after the formation of the moon. But if you go read some fandom by Star Wars, you realize Mustafar hadn't always been like that. In fact, it was a lush green planet until somebody did something bad with some magical piece of device. So Mustafar became a hellacious looking planet. Does the Earth resemble that anywhere? There was once lush and green. And the answer is yes. The end Permian, 251 million years ago, also known as the Great Dying. This was a bad day for life on this planet. Think about it this way. Something like 90 to 95% of all marine life went extinct, especially those things that made shells. Something like 70 to 80% of all terrestrial life went extinct. So this is the greatest extinction event in the history of the Earth. So what caused it? How about volcanoes? Intensive volcanism. Just like Mustafar had intensive volcanism and lava flows, the Earth at that time up in what's called modern-day Siberia, those Siberian traps formed. These are huge. I mean, they cover like 700,000 square miles. That's almost a quarter of the lower 48. I mean, that's bigger than Texas, right? I mean, that's huge. And this period of intensive volcanism lasted probably less than a million years, maybe just a few hundred thousand years at best. So this end Permian was likely caused by multiple factors resulting from this you know, period of intensive volcanism. So for example, when the volcanoes started, it's thought that a lot of them were pyroclastic. By being pyroclastic, they're just throwing up enormous clouds of ash and dust into the atmosphere, which would immediately reflect light and drop the surface temperatures. So when this happened, surface temperatures dropped, lowering global temperatures everywhere. And anytime you rapidly change temperatures on a planet, like through rapid climate change, bad things happen like 
species go extinct. Now, because all those aerosols don't last in the atmosphere very long, they would eventually come out and the planet would warm back up. But remember this, like in the cryogenian, you know, volcanic activity releases carbon dioxide. So as this volcanism continued, it continued to put carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. And I mean, there's some evidence that it might have gone up to like 4,000 parts per million to 8,000 parts per million. We're at like 425 right now. So you can imagine that that sent the world into a very much a hot house. To put this into perspective, you know, it's, it's near the end of the Permian. The ancestors to mammals are the large dominant terrestrial things. You know, they're big, they're herbivores and carnivores and you're living your life. Then all of a sudden the temperature gets really cold. So a lot of animals go extinct. And then because those volcanoes keep going, the temperature begins to rise and rise rapidly. So it's like a one-two punch. Hey, let's see what we can do with some cold here. Then let's make the surface temperatures really hot. The excess carbon dioxide was also really problematic for the oceans. See, carbon dioxide is like really dissolvable in water. And when it dissolves in water, it forms carbonic acid. And the pH of the ocean gets lower, so it acidifies the ocean. And I tell you what, any organism that relies on calcium carbonate gets hit really hard with this. So a lot of your marine organisms, they're really sensitive to that change in pH. So as the oceans acidify with more and more carbon dioxide, more things went extinct. And let's not mention, it's also getting warmer. So this extensive volcanism, I mean, it's changing the climate really fast. I mean, we're having all kinds of things going on. It's gotten cold, it's gotten warm, and it may have also gotten drier. So there is more aridity out there. All the marine life is suffering. And there was one other thing that didn't help life out either. You see, near the end of the Permian, you know, 252 million years ago, oxygen levels were still high, above 22%, not as high as 30% as back in the Carboniferous, but they were still high. Now, the problem is that as your ecosystems collapsed and all your trees and marine algae were dying off, well, guess what? They weren't pumping oxygen out into the atmosphere, causing oxygen levels to drop. And in some cases, they may have dropped as low as 10% of the atmosphere compared to 22% today. And as a result of that, Animals had a hard time breathing. And in fact, that's one of the reasons why we think that the ancestors to dinosaurs who belong to a group called the archosaurs have a one-way lung compared to a mammal's two-way lung. That was one of the reasons why they were able to become dominant over the ancestors to mammals that were dominant in the Permian. So while volcanism is what most people think caused the Indo-Permian, some people also believe that a bolide event may have caused it too. A bolide is a fancy word for saying there's a meteor that hit the earth, like the end of the dinosaurs. Other scientists don't really want to invoke a meteor hit because they've got the Siberian traps that pretty well explain the extinction event. But it's hard to rule it out because if it hit in the oceans, which you know most of our world is ocean, any impact would be long gone. The ocean floors are quite young. And in fact, the oldest rock in the ocean floors is only 200 million years old. That's still 50 million years younger than when this 
you know, meteor event would have occurred. You, so it's hard to rule out and it's hard just to say, well, we can't rule it out, so we have to accept it. That maybe a meteor did hit in the ocean and set off the Siberian traps. Because it's been hypothesized that the Deccan traps that went off about the time the dinosaurs went extinct may have also been triggered by a meteor impact off the Yucatan Peninsula. So if it happened 65 million years ago, why wouldn't a similar thing have happened 250 million years ago? With those vast scales of time, those are very likely events to have happened. There are actually other theories to explain that particular mass extinction. I don't know how much I believe it, but there are physicists, astronomers, that say, you know, maybe that time period we drifted through a galactic arm and what happened was there was so much dust that it lowered the amount of sunlight we get, causing us to get cooler, which led to the extinction. I'm not sure I buy that, but maybe that did happen 635 million years ago or 720 million years ago, causing the cryogenian. Who knows? Maybe it was even a gamma ray burst. I doubt it. It may have caused other mass extinctions, but I think the end Permian was most likely caused by the Siberian traps, this period of intense volcanism, like what we see on Mustafar, that was once a green and lush world. And the Earth was green and lush 252 million years ago, not so much by 250 million years ago. Okay, how about Tatooine? Tatooine is probably the most famous planet in the Star Wars universe. You know, it's a planet that if you're looking at the bright side of the galaxy, it's the planet that's farthest from. I find that really interesting comment because, you know, Darth Vader was above Tatooine. Anakin Skywalker had been to Tatooine. His mom died there. And Luke Skywalker was there. Obi-Wan was there. Doesn't seem like such a backwater to me. Like, like perhaps it was a really important focal point for the Star Wars universe. That's why I'm always glad to see the movies and the TV series return to it because it's such a cool place. And it turns out that Tatooine once had oceans, right? It once had oceans. It was a much wetter planet, but all the water was lost. Do we have a place like that on our own solar system? The answer is almost certainly. Three billion years ago, Mars was clearly much wetter than it is today. And for various reasons, Mars dried out. But I've gone with the Earth here for, you know, Ice Planet Hoth and Dagobah. How about the Earth? Could it ever look like Tatooine? Well, minus the two suns. And the answer is, yeah, it, it could look like a desert planet in about a billion and a half years. You see, as our sun continues to burn through its hydrogen, it's slowly heating up. And sometime between a billion and 1.5 billion years from now, it will be hot enough that the water in the oceans will melt away. And if it gets high enough in the atmosphere, ultraviolet light can split water into hydrogen and oxygen. The Earth can't hold on to hydrogen, so it escapes into, into space. The oxygen will bind to every rock around it, and our world will eventually dry out and look like a desert planet. The same fate happened to Mars. Most of its water was lost to space. It couldn't hold on to it. It doesn't have a protective ozone layer or a magnetic field to shield its atmosphere from the solar wind. So combined, these things would either strip away its atmosphere, which it's largely lost it, 
and the water that was, at least on the surface, most of it's long gone, broken apart by ultraviolet light. But Mars does have water. It's under the surface, and it's also in the poles. So there you have it. Maybe Earth in the future, minus the two suns, the twin suns, will look something like Tatooine. Mars definitely does, but the big difference between Mars and Tatooine is Mars is a bit smaller in the atmosphere. It's so thin that you couldn't breathe it. Whereas Earth in the future, if it were to become a desert planet, and I'm pretty sure it would still maintain enough of an atmosphere and oxygen levels that you could breathe it. That sounds like some pretty cool uh, thesis projects there, right? Okay, do you remember in Empire Strikes Back, when they're in the Millennium Falcon and they're trying to get away from Darth Vader, who's chasing them down, and they go into an asteroid belt, the Hoth asteroid belt. And of course, C-3PO is going, you know, the possibility of successfully navigating an asteroid field is approximately 3,720 to 1. And of course, Han Solo goes, never tell me the odds. So into the asteroid belt they go, flying and ducking, and you can really see that Han Solo is a fantastic pilot as the TIE fighters are slamming into moving asteroids, even an entire Imperial Star Destroyer gets taken out by an asteroid. It turns out that our solar system has the asteroid belt, and it's between Mars and Jupiter. And in fact, you know, early on, astronomers were like, where's our planet? We look at the position and the size of our planets, and it looks like there should be something between Mars and Jupiter. There's a dwarf planet there. It's Ceres. It's about 965 kilometers in diameter. It's big enough to be round, not big enough to be a planet. In the Hoth asteroid field, that was created when two planets collided eons before the Galactic Republic was formed, or the Empire. But our asteroid field is quite different. Yeah, it's filled with you know hundreds of thousands of objects you know, minor bodies out there that are anywhere from a meter across or even just dust and gravel out there, particles, to, you know, these dwarf planets like Ceres that are 965 kilometers in diameter. So everything in between. However, unlike the Millennium Falcon, you know, ducking and diving and weaving between all of these rocks, you know, asteroids floating around in space, in our asteroid field, the average distance between two asteroids out there is about a is about 600,000 miles. Yeah, so it's pretty diffuse. I mean, you can easily get through it if you need to. Nothing like what you see on Star Wars. But the question is, you know, where did that asteroid field come from? The early astronomers definitely realized that there's this gap between Mars and Jupiter in our solar system. And they hypothesized there's a planet there that we just haven't seen. Well, there isn't. Part of that has to do with Jupiter. Jupiter's so big that basically it prevented the planets from forming. So it sped up all the asteroids. So when they hit each other, rather than sticking together, which is accreting, like how our planet was formed, it just smashed them into rubble. And then, because they all got smashed up into smaller and smaller parts, rather than clumping together to form a larger planet, they would get flung out of the asteroid belt and picked up by, you know, Earth and Mars. Jupiter, of course, probably picked up most of them. So it's been estimated that the asteroid field 
lost almost 99.9% of all of its mass within about 100 million years, just picked up by the other planets. Okay, so Star Wars has asteroid fields. We have one, just a bit different. All right, staying with Empire Strikes Back. They got out of the asteroid field and they went to Bespin in the Cloud City. And Bespin is a gas giant. And do we have a gas giant in our solar system? Yeah, we do. We have two. I know you might have been thinking four. Well, Uranus and Neptune are being kind of reclassified as ice giants rather than gas giants. So Jupiter and Saturn would be our gas giants. So the idea here is, could we have a floating city on Jupiter? Probably not. It'd be really hard. I mean, you'd have to have all kinds of thrusters on it. And you definitely are not going to get some floating balloon out there like you could do on Venus. You see, the problem with Jupiter, there's lots of problems. It's 318 times the size of the Earth. So gravity is going to be like way, way stronger. Two and a half times or more stronger than on Earth. Okay, you want to have a floating city? You want to put some balloons up? You're going to sink like a rock. The atmosphere of Jupiter is mostly hydrogen and some helium. Hydrogen is the lightest gas in the universe. So if you make a balloon, the only thing that's well less dense than hydrogen is hot hydrogen. So no balloons there. Not only that, Jupiter has an intense magnetic field. It's like 10 times stronger than the Earth's. And it takes you know the solar wind and cosmic radiation, all these charged particles. And I mean, it just spins them up and... You've got a radiation belt that's a million times stronger than Earth's Van Allen belts. A million times. So there's going to be a lot of radiation in those cloud tops of Jupiter. Okay, well, maybe Venus. Venus is clearly not a gas giant. It's a rocky planet, much like our own. And it's covered in clouds. However, at about 50 kilometers high, 35 miles or so, there's a habitable zone and the atmosphere of Venus. Now, I said habitable. I didn't say it was inhabited by any life that we know about. Probably not. But it's warm enough and there's enough air pressure that it would be very similar to being on Earth. A little less gravity that high up, of course. So you could take a large balloon and create a floating colony with giant balloons because Venus's atmosphere is mostly carbon dioxide. So if you filled a balloon with helium, it would float on Venus. Okay, we've done a lot with Empire Strikes Back. Many people consider Empire Strikes Back to be the best of the Star Wars movies. I have, for the most part, always liked Star Wars, A New Hope, the best. Maybe it's because my parents took me to go see it in a drive-in theater back in the 70s. And I got to see it again, and I played Star Wars as a kid, and loving sci-fi and science. I've just been a Star Wars fan my entire life. It's a Star Wars. And a great scene. You know, the Millennium Falcon, they're going to Alderaan. They come out of hyperspace. There's no Alderaan. And they see the Death Star. And Obi-Wan Kenobi goes, that's no moon. That's a space station. And of course, Han Solo's like, no way, it's too big. Turns out, it's the Death Star. It's about 160 kilometers in diameter, and they had to force all of these scientists to work on it to make the big powerful laser using kyber crystals. 
it turns out that we have a moon called Mimas around Saturn. It's a bit larger. It's about 256 miles in diameter. But on the northern hemisphere, it's got this really enormous crater, right? It's like 81 miles across. That may not sound big, but when you're only 256 miles in diameter, right? That's like a third of its diameter. So it's big. And they call that large crater Herschel. And man, it looks just like the Death Star where you have the region where the lasers come out of it to blow up planets. So even in our own solar system, we have something that looks like the Death Star. Now, Herschel is really cool. It's like the smallest body in the solar system that can be round based on its own gravity. And interestingly, it's mostly ice. And, you know, it's all covered in meteors and everything like that. So there's craters all over it. However, when Cassini took a closer look at it right before the end of Cassini's mission, they realized there was something odd about it. And it turns out that Mimas may actually be a stealth ocean world. It may have this really young ocean in it. That's interesting, meaning our oceans could be all over this solar system. All right. Also, in Star Wars, right after they leave the space station, they escape, they go to Yavin 4. And Yavin 4 is a habitable moon around the gas giant. It's also like the forest moon of Endor. So in the Star Wars universe, there's this really neat idea that there are these habitable moons around large gas giants. Now, here's a big difference. We might have habitable moons around our planets of Jupiter and Saturn and Uranus and Neptune. And they might be these ice ocean worlds, right? There, So there's ocean, but it's covered in ice, sometimes miles thick. Unlike the forest moon of Endor, which is basically redwood forest where the Wookiees are, or Yavin 4, which is shot in Central America, we don't really have any analog to that in our own solar system. However, as we start studying planets outside of our solar system, we find that there's lots of these, you know, gas giants. And some of them are, you know, near the habitable zone. So you could imagine that a gas giant might have a rather large moon orbiting it. Now, for that moon to look like Endor or Yavin 4, I would suspect it would have to be almost Earth-sized to create and generate a magnetic field to repel all the radiation coming off of a gas giant. That's my guess. But I... I do find it interesting, though, that Lucas and his team of writers came up with this idea of habitable planets around gas giants. I think it's totally plausible that that could happen. Of course, there are many, many other worlds in Star Wars. That's why I like the universe so much is because a lot of writers have contributed to the story, expanding the universe. And they draw on other science fiction as well. So the last one I'll talk about is Coruscant. Coruscant, of course, is the galactic center. It's the center of the Republic and the Empire. Coruscant is a city world, or it's a whole world covered in city. Now, of course, Lucas didn't come up with this. That is Trantor from the Foundation series, written by Isaac Asimov, going all the way back to the 1950s. Now, of course, we have no analog to that either, but we do have the Earth. We have 8 billion people on our planet, and Maybe, who knows, a million, two million years down the road, we turn our planet into a city world. As a biologist who loves diversity 
and going for long walks on beaches? I would hope not. And I think it would be almost impossible for us to do that. I will say that it's a really cool idea. And it was really fun seeing Coruscant actually going all the way back to when they re-released the original series. They added in a scene at the Return of the Jedi that showed Coruscant, the city world. And then, of course, seeing it fleshed out in the prequels, that was that was very interesting to see how a, a city world would look. But I doubt that the Earth would ever look like that. But who knows? I would hope not, though. Well, that's my tour of uh, Star Wars and our solar system. Hit me up on Facebook, Tom Sycast. Let me know what you think. Can you think of any other worlds? that would resemble our own solar system. I'd love to hear what you think. Until next time, this has been Tom Sycast.